A year ago today, or a year ago this last week, I should say, uh, was my first day, July 1st, last year. Uh, I had the privilege of coming and being your outreach pastor. Uh, so if you're, thank you for that. So it was, it was really an answer to prayer for, for my wife and I. We had been praying for a long time as God began to kind of build this vision in, in our hearts and minds is what would it look like for the local church uh, to engage this world on mission? And so we were privileged to find a, a church that was crazy enough to hire me. Um, but it's really been an honor this past year of, of really thinking about how do we engage our, our local community with the gospel? Uh, how do we equip people to go on mission and, and raise up missionaries to go uh, long-term into the field? The, the missionary task is enormous. Uh, and ultimately, God has commissioned the local church for this work. It's not mission agencies, it's not, it's local church. We are, we are the sending agency, and, and we work with partners, mission agencies, for that work. And so we want to continue to advance the kingdom through Cypress Bible Church. And so this past year, we've been casting vision for this thing called No Place Left. Uh, no Place Left is, is a vision that we believe uh, is of God. It's what would it look like for there to be no place left in Houston, Texas, where everybody has access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone has access to, to discipleship and healthy churches. What would that look like and what would it take for us to accomplish that task? And so you can see that we even got a fancy little logo here, no place left, right? So that means we're legitimate. But ultimately, logos and fancy things like this mean nothing, really. It, it's what are we going to do about it? Are we going to, to take on this missionary task? The No Place Left vision comes from, from Romans 15, 17 through 24. Uh, the Apostle Paul, after doing all this work, basically comes to, to Rome and he's getting ready to go to Spain. And so he's writing one of the longest missionary support letters ever written, right? And he's saying, hey, from Jerusalem all the way to Illyricum, I have proclaimed the gospel. And we see the gospel advancing across this region. We see discipleship being ha happening and disciples multiplying, churches planted and being, and being multiplied across this region. And in verse 23, he basically says, there's no place left for me to work in this whole region. I'm going to go to Spain. I'm going to go to where the gospel is not being proclaimed, where, where discipleship is not happening, where there is no access to local church. I'm going to start a new work there. Would you support me in this work? And so the question is, is if Paul in his day could proclaim with confidence there's no more work for me to do in this region. It's being taken care of. He's raised up enough leaders that he's seeing the, the, the kingdom advanced and he's no longer needed. So what would that take for us as a church to see that happen in Houston, Texas? To where everybody hears the gospel. Everybody has access to discipleship. Everyone has access to healthy church. It, it, sometimes we look at the missionary task and we say, oh gosh, it's just... It's too much, right? There's too much work to be done. There's too many people. Uh, the population's growing. Uh, well, Paul gives us an example in, in Acts. In Acts 19, he, he goes into this region of Ephesus, and he finds these, these 12 men. They had been baptized by John the Baptist, but they had not yet received the Spirit of God. So Paul preaches to them the gospel, and they receive the Spirit. And he takes them into to the synagogue, and he spends three months until some of them start to mock the way. He takes them into the school of Tyrannus, and he spends two years in the school. 
And so for two years, Paul labors and teaches these men. And it says at the very end of this, in verse 10, it says, This took place for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ, both Jew and Greek. Now how many in the region of Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus Christ according to this verse? All. So historically, the population of Asia in that day was about 5 to 6 million people. 5 to 6 million people. Now what's the population, Metro Houston? Right? It's about 5 to 6 million people. How many men did Paul do this with? He started with 12 men. He taught them, he trained them, he equipped them. And, and Paul spent every day teaching in the school of Tyrannus. So Paul wasn't traveling around the region. He was teaching every day in the school. But through these 12 men, within two years, he trains them. You ever heard of 2 Timothy 2.2? 2 right? Paul told Timothy, he says, take what I've given to you and pass it on to other faithful men who will pass it on to others also. So I think Paul would have employed this principle, not just with Timothy, but to these 12 men. And he would have said, hey, take what I've given to you and pass it on to faithful men who will pass it on to others also. So we see this principle of multiplication in Paul's work. He's not simply just adding to the kingdom. He's raising up leaders and trainers and disciple makers and church planners. And he's saying, go. And they go out and within two years, everyone in this region has access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so if we as a church were to say, in the next two years, there's not going to be a single soul in Houston, Texas, who has not had access to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what would we have to do? We would have to start with being faithful men and women. We would have to take on the the responsibility of the missionary task and saying, it's not for somebody else to do, it's for me to do. Sometimes we say, well, that's the, that's the job of the church, right? But we are the church. And so if we are to realize this, this missionary task that God has set before us, that His desire is that all would hear, we have to take on that identity. So when we look at the, when we look at the world, is, is there a lot of work to be done? There's a, there's a ton of work to be done. You can see that the areas in the green are, are reached areas. Uh, the areas in the, in the orange are unreached people groups and the red unengaged unreached people group. And so there's about 7 billion people on the planet and about 4 billion of them are unreached or, and or unengaged people groups. And so the, the task seems overwhelming. But it's only overwhelming if we think in terms of, of addition. If we think in terms of multiplication, it's actually very doable. Not just in generations from now, but in our day, in our time, we could accomplish the missionary task if we just went back to the Scriptures and said, what if we just did what the Apostle Paul did? What if we just did what Jesus commanded us to do? But all of this starts with us. And it starts with the heart of our Father. Is it God's desire that every person would be reached? When you think about the the, the 7 billion people on the planet, how many of those people does God want to perish and spend an eternity separated from Him? It's God's desire that none would perish. 
And so if my heart is going to be aligned with the heart of my Father, I have to believe that God doesn't want a single soul to step into eternity without having access to the Gospel. Not a single soul that has an opportunity to be discipled. Not a single soul that wouldn't have access to healthy church. So if I'm aligning myself with my Father's heart, I'm taking on the missionary task, I have to believe that if this is God's desire, if it's His will, and we're praying that His will would be done, right? That His kingdom would come on earth as it is in heaven. Can God do it? Is it His desire? We we have to say yes, it's His desire. It's His plan. It's what He says over and over and over in Scripture. Habakkuk says one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. How completely do the waters cover the sea? Utterly. Absolutely. Right? And so one day this will happen and God's promises that this will be fulfilled. We know the victory has been won. We know that this will be accomplished. The question is, are we taking on the identity and aligning ourselves with our Father's heart to see it done in our day? Not just passing the torch, kicking the can. Like we hear that term a lot, right, in politics. Kicking the can. Has the church kicked the can so many times that we just say, ah, maybe somebody else will do it someday, but, but not us? I, I pray not. And so I think God is doing something in this day. He's he's raising up His church to say, you can do it, and it's my desire. But we really have to think through this and really think through the the identity that God has has given us. He's called us to to go, right? A lot of times you hear from the pulpit over and over, we tell you, go and make disciples. But we we have to remember that why do we go? The Great Commission doesn't start with go. The Great Commission starts with all authority. All authority has been given to Jesus Christ in heaven and on earth. And He says, therefore, therefore go. Make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to obey. To observe all the things that I have commanded. And as we go about this work, where is Jesus Christ? He's with us always, even to the end of the age. And so when we think about the the missionary task of God sending us into the world, He's sending us with how much authority? All of it. All the authority that He has in heaven and earth, He says, go in that authority. And as we go, where is Jesus? He's with us always. So if God is for us, who can stand against us? No one. Nothing. But again, it comes back to identity. Is this who we are as the people of God? Have we accepted this this task, this responsibility that we go in the authority of Jesus and He is with us? We want to accomplish this task, but we don't accomplish it apart from Him. Ultimately, it's His work. He is the Lord of the harvest. So let's look historically Who are we as a people of God? We we are a priesthood of believers, right? If we take on that identity as as priests, 
we have to understand what is the purpose of that priesthood. In, in the Old Testament, they needed priests to enter into the temple to offer, offer sacrifices for us, right? To atone for sin. But Jesus has accomplished that for us. He has atoned for sin once and for all. And now each of us have access to God directly. We no longer need an intermediator because we have Jesus Christ as our intermediator. intermediator. And we've taken on a new identity. He's, he's made us new creatures in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away and all things have become new. But for, but for what purpose? It says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, who had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. So you are a priesthood of believers for what purpose? So that you may proclaim. So that you may declare to the world the testimony of what God has done in your heart and what, what God has changed in you, that old nature that has died and the new nature that has come. But this isn't a, this isn't a new thing, is it? This is what we see from the very beginning. What does God do in the beginning? He creates, and He creates a perfect world. And He creates perfect humanity, man and woman. Genesis 26 says, God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Verse 27 says, God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created them, male and female. He created them. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. What image did God create man and woman in? In his image. And he says, take that image and fill the whole world with my image, with my glory. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill it. But it wasn't too much longer that, that man and woman rejected that identity, right? And what happened? They, they sinned against a holy God. They ate of the forbidden fruit. When, men, women saw, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eye and that the tree was desirable to make one wise, she took from the fruit and ate. And she gave also to her husband and he ate. So sin entered into humanity. And Adam and Eve reproduced after their own kind. Sinful humanity entered the world. But God said that he would redeem the sinful world. That one day he would crush the head of the serpent. But he would pierce the foot of talking about the coming of Christ. He would be pierced for us. So he would bring redemption to humanity. But God's plan was still to multiply, to fill the whole earth, even though man and woman had sinned against him. And so we see in Genesis 6 that as humanity began to populate the earth, they began to multiply across the land, that God was grieved. And Genesis 6, 5 says, Then the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thought of their heart was evil continually. 
The Lord was sorry that He had made man on the earth, and He was grieved in His heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man's I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land. But, verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So Noah was commanded to, to build an ark, and the floods came and cleansed the lands of all this unrighteousness, but, but Noah and his family were saved. In Genesis 9, he tells Noah and his sons, he says, be fruitful and multiply. Be fruitful and multiply. And man began again to multiply across the earth. We began to repopulate. We began to spread out and expand. And what is man's response? We began to build a tower. Now, a lot of times when you think about the Sunday school lesson, you picture a tower like this, right? And the sin of man was that he was going to build a tower that was going to reach to heaven. So we could just walk right into heaven, right? Was that, the, was that the problem? Is that even possible? It's not, is it? So what's the, what's the sin here? What is the great sin of this passage? God's command is to be fruitful, multiply, fill the whole earth with my glory. And what does man do? Let us make a name for ourselves, otherwise we will be scattered abroad the face of the whole earth. So over and over we see this this pattern. God commands, be fruitful and multiply. Take my image and fill the whole earth with it. Promises that He will bring redemption to His people. And man responds by sinning. God brings redemption. He saves humanity. He says, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Man's response is, we sin. God brings redemption. God says, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. And our flesh says, no, no, let's not do that. Let's build ourselves a tower. Let's make a name for ourselves so that we would not be scattered across the earth. Has that ever gone well for humanity when we decide to do it our way rather than God's way? Never has, never will. But God's plan always works out in the end. And so, he decides to create a people for himself and he calls out Abram. And he says he will, he will, they will be a, a people of God. He will create a, a new people who will follow God's ways. And so, through Abraham, who, Abram, who becomes Abraham, uh, has Isaac, has Jacob, and he begins to, to unfold his plan of redemption to the world. They find themselves in the, in the land of, of Egypt. And God saves them from Egypt through Moses. And they enter into the wilderness. In Exodus 19 the people begin to kind of grumble against God. Is, it, is this a familiar theme? Right, over and over, they were grumbling in the wilderness even though they had been freed from, from slavery. Uh, but they begin to be frustrated with Moses. And they begin to say to Moses, hey Moses, why does God only speak to you? 
Why doesn't he just come and speak to us directly? Wouldn't, wouldn't that be a better plan? I mean, for us, wouldn't that be a better plan? Like if, if God could just speak to us directly and we could speak to God directly? Sounds logical, right? Sounds like that would be a better way. And so in Exodus 19, 5, it says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, of all the, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. And so Moses tells them uh, in verse 11, he says in three days he's going to come down and he's going to speak to the people. And the people said, yes, this is a great plan. We like it. We'll do it. So they prepare themselves in Exodus 20, 18. It says, all the people perceived the thunder and the lightning flashes and the sounds of the trumpets and the mountains smoking. And when when the people saw it, they trembled and stood at a distance. Then they said to Moses, speak to us yourself and we will listen, but let let God not speak to us lest we die. So what, what did they just do? God had said that he would speak to them directly. He would speak to them directly, and the people were willing. But when God showed up and he, and he starts to speak, what does man do? He draws back in fear, and he rejects that identity that God was going to give them. What were they going to be? They were going to be a holy nation. They were going to be a kingdom of priests who would have, all of them would have direct access to God. What, a, what an amazing gift that God was offering them. And what is their response? They reject it. Does that passage sound familiar? It sounds exactly like what we just read in in 1 Peter. It sounds like what God has called the church to be. We have been called to be a a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that we may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness into His marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God who had not received mercy, but now have received mercy. So we are now the people of God. God has given us direct access to Himself, just as He had promised the Israelites in the wilderness, you shall be a people set apart for my glory, a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests. But they rejected that identity. So now we sit here today, sin has been atoned for, Jesus has paid the ultimate price for our sin. God came in the flesh, walked on this earth, and He was crucified for our transgressions. He was crushed. But he has risen from the dead. And now he has called us his people. All of those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ have taken on a new nature. But if you see what the nature of sin does in humanity, what does it do? It always rebels against God's plan. It always rebels against God's desire. So the question is, is are we going to take on the identity that God has given us in Christ Jesus? Jesus? 
Or are we going to accept it? Are we going to embrace it? And if we embrace it, what does that mean? It means that we are called to proclaim the excellencies of Him who called us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. That's who we are as the people of God. So there's some some things that we have to do in order to to acknowledge this responsibility that God has given us. The first thing is we have to, to know what is our identity in Christ. A lot of times we talk about this idea of being a, a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. But what, what, what does that really mean for us? If we've been redeemed, right? If we've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith, then the Scripture very clearly says, 2 Corinthians says, that you are a new creature in Christ Jesus. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. How did God do that? Verse 21 says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that you might become the righteousness of God in Him. So when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, in His person, in His death, in His resurrection, when you believe in your heart, and when you confess with your mouth that that is who you are in Christ, He is my Lord and Savior, and I believe that He has accomplished everything that He has accomplished, The Scripture says you become a new creature, a new creation in Christ Jesus. But as in 1 Peter, it also says there was a responsibility. There's a reason. There's a purpose behind that. And it says that you are now an ambassador of God. An ambassador is one who represents. So we represent the interests of God on earth. No small thing. And in that same passage... Verse 18, it says He's given us a ministry. So if you're, if you're sitting here this morning and you've professed Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you're a new creation and have become an ambassador and have a ministry. The ministry of reconciliation. In verse 19, it says that He has given us the message of reconciliation. He's given us the Gospel. So He's basically saying, you are now my missionaries. You are how the world is going to hear about me. How the world is going to hear about my good news. But to do that, we have to, next step is we have to seek the kingdom. When we think about what is the role of of the local church, the role of the local church is to be on mission for God. And that's exactly who and what we want to be as a church. We want to be on mission for God. God says, seek first the kingdom and right, everything else will be added unto you. So let's be a people of God who seek His kingdom first. Let's be a people of prayer. When you think about the work of evangelism, it sounds scary and it sounds terrifying. And it should be. But it doesn't have to be. We have to be trained and equipped for this work. A lot of times we think about the world today and we think the world's getting, it's getting dark. It's kind of like in here, right? The lights come off and they come down. But the, the world, is it, is, it, is it dark? Is it without hope? It's not. We can't, we can't give up. We charge forward because Jesus says He has all authority and He tells us to go in that authority. 
And we don't have a harvest problem. Jesus Himself says the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So we want to raise up laborers for this work. And as a church, we want to then equip you for the work of ministry. We want to make sure that you have competence, confidence, commitment, conviction for this work that God has called us to, to reach all of Houston, to reach to the ends of the earth. That's God's desire. And as we lay out this strategy and this plan for what we feel God has called us to as a church, we have to put it into action. We have to obey. John 14, 6 says, If you are my disciples, you will obey my commands. What did Jesus come to do? He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to bring redemption to lost humanity, knowing that, that we wouldn't be perfect, but He offered us His perfection. He offered us His righteousness. And how do we claim it? We claim it by faith. Believing that God loves us and that He sent His Son to save us. But He came to save us for a purpose. Because His desire isn't for you alone. His desire is for your family. His desire is for your neighborhood. His desire is for your co-workers, your classmates, and even to the ends of the earth, God's desire is for all people. And so we have to take upon ourselves this missionary task, believing that God through us will accomplish everything that He has promised. That one day the knowledge of the glory of the Lord will fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. And we just step out in faith, believing that God through us will establish His kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And one day we'll perfect all things. And one day we will all stand before God in glory, praising Him, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ our Savior. Because it's what He has accomplished through us. Amen? Amen. So we come here this morning acknowledging our new identity in Christ. And we acknowledge that it is only God who has accomplished this through His Son, Jesus Christ. He died for us on the cross and is risen from the grave. And through faith, has made a, a new creation available to all of us if we accept that and take on the, this new identity. And so we come here to celebrate the, the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. Um, and we all have access to this table. The requirement for, for coming to the table is that you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. But he also says that we have to take the cup and the bread. We have to take it in a worthy manner. And Paul even warns the church. He says, make sure you don't abuse this table. Make sure you take it properly. Evaluate yourself. Look into yourself and make sure you, you have confessed your sins before God. And so... Let's take a moment right now and just, just to evaluate. Are you, are you right with God? Have you confessed your sins before Him? Let's just take a few minutes in, in prayer, in silent. Bow your heads and let's just pray to God. God, forgive me of my sins and prepare me for this table.